Hello and welcome to the 37th episode of Tailoring in Conversation. My name is Reza and in this series I'll be talking to tailors, business owners, cloth merchants and other industry participants from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is Antonia Eid. Antonia is a bespoke cutter and founder of Montague Eid, a modern bespoke tailoring atelier with a traditional background based in London's Mayfair. Originally trained on Savile Row, Antonia began her apprenticeship at Hardy Amy's before she further developed her skills at Huntsman. In our conversation for today, we're going to be talking about starting a new company, the relationship between employees and employers, information sharing within communities, and much more. So without further ado, let's go. Antonia, first of all, the, one of the questions that I'd like to ask you is, uh, I read that you were a teacher in Wandsworth Prison. Yeah. Is that yeah. correct? Um, that is true. Tell me about <laughs> I it. I worked in Wandsworth. It's actually while I was at college, while I was at London College of Fashion. Um, it was for an amazing charity called Pimlico Park Opera. Um, and it was doing costumes. Uh, so Pimlico Park Opera is this brilliant setup where they go into prisons and the idea is that you're training prisoners, inmates, in a skill. Mm-hmm. Because obviously getting a job when you get out of prison is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are a huge number of charities doing work like this. It's incredible. But the idea is that there's a performance at the end. Um, so the performance is inside Wandsworth, mm-hmm. which is obviously a beautiful building. I mean, it's an extraordinary, very historical building. Um it's one of the old star formation grids. Um, and I, I mean, the, the, the guys that were working on it were happy. Obviously, they um, had sort of good behavior reports. And mm-hmm. so we were being taught how to like rig light, make costumes. Um, they were performers. Um, I mean, the whole setup was, was basically had to be initiated by the prisoners. It had to be, it had to be encouraged by the prisoners and, and mm-hmm. learned. Um, How old were you really, at this time? Was really good, I was, uh, I want to say 21. 21. Maybe. Yeah. So, and now I think, now I think about it, I'm like, oh gosh, that's quite a, quite a punchy thing to do. But actually it, it was amazing. It was a really good experience. And there were a lot of people in there that, Obviously, the great thing about it is you're not allowed to ask what anyone's in there for. And mm-hmm. they're not really allowed to know anything about you. They don't know your last name. They don't know anything else. Um, but it was a really positive experience because all the people who were on this program mm-hmm. really wanted to learn and really wanted to have a positive to look forward to after after they mm-hmm. came out. Um, and I think there should be more schemes like this. I mean, I think there should be more effort to try and train up um train up offenders really mm. interestingly one of my absolute um sort of hero companies is timpsons the shoemaker mm-hmm. because they mostly employ ex-cons wow yeah so they train up ex-cons and it's at the discretion of i mean timpsons as a company is amazing i look into it it's, it's just extraordinary but the idea is that they the manager in each store has mm-hmm a huge amount of responsibility towards his staff, but also whether he keeps people on, how he trains them up, what he does with them. Um, mm-hmm. The Timpson family has like three holiday homes in the UK for their staff to use. They have a huge amount of like child support. It's really, it's a really great social initiative. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I think there should be more things like that. I think, you know, even I'm sure there's space, even within our trade mm-hmm. um, of doing that. I, yeah, I kind of have this fantasy. If anyone out there wants to do it for me, I would be very pro it because I don't have time at the moment. But when I do have time, um, mm-hmm. I think actually what the UK is missing on the high mm-hmm. street is a series of, they could be franchised, they could be not franchised, uh, alteration shops. So right. the equivalent, the Timpsons equivalent of an alteration tailor, where mm-hmm. you know the quality you're getting, mm-hmm. you know that there's a guarantee on the quality, like you're not just going to go back to this alteration tailor and they'll have disappeared, which happens so often in London. Um, and I think, you know, even looking looking at the States, if you really like something in the US, or like a pair of jeans, you like the colour, you buy them and you take them to your alteration tailor. Everyone has an alteration tailor that they go mm-hmm. to. Yeah. In the UK, we have much more disposable idea of fashion. And actually, mm-hmm. what I think we should be doing is going into prisons, training ex-cons or cons up as alteration tailors, because it is a skill. Mm-hmm. And then that's that's an applicable skill you can use in the real world. You know, you can you can go out and work for one of these franchises, and you know that mm-hmm. you're a certain quality. There could be like a diploma in it. Um, and not only are you providing jobs, but you're also providing a really important service. Because I think, mm-hmm. you know reusable fashion or, or reusing clothes hopefully the disposable fashion industry is um going to slowly disappear yeah. and this will be one way of helping helping it happen yeah yeah and, and this probably uh, kind of like locks into um this very uh, famous and boring thing that some tailors say when they say that tailoring is not saving lives uh, what you've been doing in in training those people is is not only have you Given them, given them an, an opportunity to kind of like uh, have a purpose, but also to learn a skill. I used to, when I was uh, 17, I think, I had this one year where I was giving workshops to kids with difficult backgrounds. You know, parents were alcoholics or they were sexually abused or they had drug mm-hmm. problems, gang crimes and stuff. And one of the things I noticed is that they were all very smart but their intelligence was channeled in practical skills rather than academic skills. And, and so as soon as they did learn, learn something, they would just continuously repeat that. And it, it looked as if they were just channeling all their aggression and all their kind of like energy into that. And so how, how was your interaction with the prisoners? I mean, were they open to what you were teaching them or did they were kind of like, you know, standing back and be like, you know, who the hell are you telling me what to do? You know, because because prisoners are, you know, they're not the most agreeable people, let's say. I mean, the irony is Boris Becker's just gone to Wanza. So I feel like, uh, you know, you, you can understand from that that there's a huge cross section of people there. Um, the The thing about all these courses and the thing about education within the prison system is that to get onto them you often have to be you know get a big tick for good behavior um Mm -hmm. i do agree with you though i think what's fascinating about something that is a physical art like tailoring is that Mm -hmm. you everyone learns in different ways Mm -hmm. so i'm a very physical learner if i'm shown how to do something and i i literally watch someone do it i can then understand that copy it replicate it whatever I didn't do particularly well at school because I am not the sort of person that can learn from sitting behind a desk, reading off a blackboard, reading a textbook. I found revising for exams incredibly difficult. Um, I wasn't bad at writing essays, but I just, the the actual exam itself, 
I could know mm-hmm. all the information, but would walk into the exam room and I would forget everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I sat my last exam when I was 18, on my 18th birthday. Um, and I have not looked back. But I think it's very interesting because my sister is a lawyer and is very mm-hmm. kind of black and white, straight down the line, like very academic. And mm-hmm. can she can look at the page of a textbook, memorize that information and spew it back to me. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways which our education system needs to kind of change and I mm-hmm. don't say this as an educator so I, I you know I'm probably a several of toes but I think one of the ways that we need to adapt is by understanding that everyone learns in different ways mm-hmm. and that's why I think the apprenticeship system is so interesting because mm-hmm. you know you don't when people come to us saying you know I want to be a tailor I want to do an apprenticeship I've got a degree from LCF and I've got a first in tailoring actually in all honesty that's not really I mean, again, as, as my old boss used to say, he was like, don't, don't really give a crap where you come from. You know, our old apprentice had a degree in geography from mm. Bristol. Mm-hmm. Super switched on, super bright, quick learner. You could show her something and she'd get it. I didn't care that she had a degree in geography. Like, it didn't matter to us because actually mm-hmm. what mattered was that the way she learned was the way we could teach. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it was a very kind of happy relationship. And we, you know, we, yeah, we, we absolutely love her to bits. So I think it's a very interesting um it's a very interesting point. I also think the joy of something like tailoring is that you're creating something tangible. Mm-hmm. So if you're with a prisoner or if you're with someone who, you know, an ex-con or a difficult child or someone who's causing trouble, if you give them something to focus on that is tangible, that is you can see progress instantly, it's mm-hmm. really gratifying. Like yes. when, you know, when you finish cutting a three-piece suit you look at this wadge of paper and you're like cool fantastic mm-hmm. there is there's something to show for my last four hours work you know there's something yes. that I can actually see and feel and understand and um and look at and then I also think the other side of that is that we you know it's talked about a lot in our industry rock of eye mm-hmm. rock of eye as a phrase is I mean kind of doesn't really mean anything but what it does mean is that you learn through time what looks right and what doesn't Mm -hmm. and that is also hugely gratifying to learn Mm -hmm. um and i think yeah i think teaching teaching in a way that people can learn is very important basically yes yes. real Uh, real no no that's that's i i love it you know it's i guess uh going back to the prisoners and then i'll continue with with a few other things but going back to the prisoners i think you know realizing that most people i mean pr- being in prison is a is a very complicated thing you don't just end up there mm. but but there is also like so some of them maybe ha- may have been involved in like a murder or or they just you know psychologically just aren't there in a normal functioning but some of them also do realize in prison that hey you know there is a life for me out there but now i'm just stuck for a few years here and and most of those people who kind of like develop a conscience, they they tend to repeat voices that they've heard, which is usually like, you know, their own voices telling them that they're they're not good for anything. And all they do is just, you know, mess things up. But then, like you say, when, you, when they see something tangible that they've made, it's as if you're bringing back the, that spark of, of life in them, you know, to, to show them like, look, this could be your way out. And I think that that's... Yeah. Uh, that's really crucial and what you also said about the alteration uh, let's say franchise I think that's also very important I I, I was I was talking I don't I can't remember who I was talking to I think uh, 
I think I was talking to Joe Holsgrove uh, about this, and and he said that probably one of the easiest or the best ways to get younger people who can't afford bespoke into bespoke is to encourage the use of alterations because that just gets them 100%. into the hat, right? So that connects with what you're saying. But it's also, it's so interesting because it's just not in our culture. It's a mm-hmm. very American thing to do. It's very French thing. You know, every prison street corner has an alteration tailor on it and you can be mm-hmm. absolutely sure they'll be of a certain standard. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, the other thing that we, you know, looping back to the prison thing, I think it's very important at the moment to ensure that staying in prison isn't the easiest option. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a very, very, my um, husband's cousin is working in prison at the moment and she's, she's fascinating about it because she said the issue is that reoffending is so high because actually if you've got a kid who's, particularly in a young, young offenders institute, if you've got a kid who's naughty and mm-hmm. has done something wrong and mm-hmm. it's their third strike, that's it. They get sent to the young offenders institute and actually the minute they come of age, they get then transferred to an adult institution. That person isn't going to benefit from that. You're not, you're not you know, it's, it's a serious trap of the risk, i.e. it's time, mm-hmm. but they're not going to benefit from going back into the system. You need mm-hmm. to make sure that there is something that is is more important. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a chance, there's an option, there's a life after. And I think that's the amazing thing that Timpson does, um, is that actually it's creating job opportunities, it's creating hope, it's creating an option of something mm-hmm. that you can plausibly crack on with and, and you know, make a life for yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and I think tailoring is a wonderful thing because it's, yes, it's not only a kind of physical job, you know, you don't need to be an academic to become a tailor. Um, mm-hmm. half the people I mean again kind of coming back to Stuart Stuart I don't think had any GCSEs um, mm-hmm. he was one of the uh, he was, it was under Maggie Thatcher's apprenticeship scheme that he started um, mm-hmm. and he Geese and Hawks he started Geese and Hawks the trouser making trouser cutting apprentice trouser making apprentice trouser cutting can't remember and um, Geese took on two apprentices that year and one of them was Stuart and one of them was a young guy called Lee McQueen. Mm. And, you know, you look, you look at the two of them and you're like, you know, kind of a bit like, probably got kicked out of school. Stuart didn't finish school. He was the youngest of five. Both mm. his parents and he died. And so his siblings were like, okay, it's fine. You've got to get a job. Mm. Like, you've got to earn a living. And that's how he became a tailor because he quite liked clothes. And he thought, you know, I could probably do this. Well, mm. actually, you know, for someone who's not academic, he ran a company he learned how to cut patterns. He was a very good tailor. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be academically switched on to yes. do it. Mm-hmm. But also, once you learn the craft, it's a career for life. You know, it is a skill. It's like mm-hmm. being a bricklayer. You know, it's, it's, it's a skill. Um, yeah. And I think often because of our clients, because our clients are these people who can afford bespoke tailoring, mm-hmm. you forget that actually the guys that are, are making your clothes, you know, might not have a GCSE, but they can make mm-hmm. a very good code. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, our, our industry is definitely evolving and it's so dynamic that, you know, what, what we know about yesterday may not be any relevant tomorrow anymore. But one thing is for sure, you are now in your shop in Mayfair and you just told me that you started this in 2019. So... <clears throat> Can you can you oh, tell uh, us the, a... the the shop started in 2016? 
2016, sorry, forgive me. Yeah, yeah, 2016. So we moved here in 2019. We did three years in in Soho on Broad Street and then moved. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I I think I remember that because when when you were, you were one of the judges at the Golden Shares, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think yeah. I remember that's when I heard that you were going out on your own. So, so how how was the transition from from being employed uh, at you know some of the bigger companies to going out on your own? What what was the decision for you? What was the thought process? And how do you uh, establish everything? Because you know you're in a shop actually, but one day this was all just a dream, and this was all kind of like an idea. So how did it go from something? out there in, in your mind into something that has a floor and walls and a ceiling and bundles and bunches? I just don't have a ceiling. You just can't see it. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, we, um, how did it start? So I, when I was at Hardy Amy's, mm-hmm. I got the opportunity to move to Huntsman and went and spoke to my boss, Stuart, and said, look, this job's come up. Um, if you tell me I shouldn't take it, I won't. But I think mm-hmm. it could be a good opportunity. And he was like, no, because Hardy's was small. We were a team of three. Uh, we did all the sales. We did all the invoicing. We did literally start to finish everything. So it was an incredible learning experience. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I learned a bunches. I learned, you know, in a lot of the bigger houses, you have salesmen. So the cutters never really get to know how to sell or know the bunches or know the linings or know that, because that all gets done by a salesman. Mm-hmm. Um, at Hardy Amy's, it was kind of a baptism of fire. We, we did everything. Um, mm-hmm. you know, running around, trimming, setting up samples, setting up, you know, everything. Um, and Stuart said, no, look, this is, this is a huge opportunity. Huntsman at the time, I think, cut five times the amount of suits that we cut a year. Um, mm. And so I moved to Huntsman and was working under Pat Murphy, uh, which was huge amounts of fun. Um, we then, Pat very sadly left. And so I was working as a cutter there on my own. And basically, I never wanted to work for myself. I always wanted to work for a company. But it got to the point where I just... If you're the youngest cutter in a company, you'll be the person who cuts the bread and butter suits. Mm-hmm. So you're cutting blue suits. And you're cutting gray suits. And that's fine and that's good. But if a really lovely, fun, juicy job came along, mm-hmm. probably be taken off you. And I just got to the point where I was like, actually, I'd quite like to have a chance to, to do some of this. I'd, I'd like to have the chance to show that actually I can be a bit more creative or whatever. Um, and I spoke to uh, Carol, who was the manager at the time, mm-hmm. um, and kind of said to her, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. I've actually decided that I want a chance to do something a bit more creative. Um, and she said, fair enough, off you go. Mm. And we had a really good chat about it. Um, but it gave me a chance to, yeah, to be more creative, to kind of take on more fun jobs, do projects mm-hmm. that I love, um, say yes to work that I wouldn't have been able to say yes to, say no to work that I didn't want to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's been a really good experience. It's been really positive. And actually, I... I had sort of got to the stage when I left mm. Huntsman that if it didn't work, I would just find another job. Mm-hmm. Okay, I um, see. That and, makes sense. And probably, and probably leave the trade. Um, oh, completely. I have a, well, I've, I've, I mean, I've got a degree in costume. 
Um, I I'm see. not okay. from a bespoke tailoring background. So I didn't sew until mm-hmm. I was 18. Um, okay. I was going to do fine art at university. And then uh, uh, my boyfriend and I at the time had an argument. And so I withdrew my application <laughs> and looked up where did the most life drawing a week in foundation. And that was London College of Fashion, who did a whole day a week. So mm-hmm. I rang them up and I said, look, I can't sew, but I love drawing. What do you think? And they were like, yeah, yeah, come along to the portfolio. You're doing fine. And they took my portfolio along. And this is actually while LCF still did an art foundation course. I think they stopped it a couple of years after us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did a year of basically as much life drawing as I could do. Mm-hmm. And, but also started doing a bit of pattern cutting. And at the end of the year, they said, okay, cool. Do you want to do men's or women's wear? And I was like... Mm-hmm. Don't know, and they said, "Well, if you don't know, you should do costume because that covers both." Mm-hmm. And so I applied for the costume degree um, and got in. And it's a really, it's a really small course, or it was a really small course at the time. There were twenty of us, mm-hmm. um, and we got to do all kinds of things. I mean, tutus and hats and corsets, mm-hmm. and really, it's a really lovely course because it's design and making. Uh, and then at the end of our second year, we had to do a tailoring module. And I kind of put off tailoring till then because I wasn't interested. And they were like, no, this is the 18th century man's so you've got to do this. Like, sorry. And we had the most extraordinary tutor, a lady called Roxy Cressy. Um, and I completely fell in love with tailoring and menswear. Uh, and it just, it was, for me, it was kind of a thunderbolt moment where I was like, this is actually what I want to do. This is really exciting. And so I did the 18th century menswear project, um, which I since have been back to teach which was pretty surreal um and after that decided that actually I wanted to do a traditional apprenticeship so mm-hmm. spent nine months in my last year at uni going up and down Savile Row every two weeks with a CD mm-hmm. knocking on doors uh I since I kept all my rejection letters no one was looking for apprentices this was like 2011 yeah. uh, 2010 2011 and obviously we were still kind of in the recession and I have, yeah, I have rejection letters from people that are now my friends <laughs> being like, mm-hmm. no, don't want an apprentice. And eventually I went into Hardy Amy's and there was a guy in the front shop called Austin Musty Muse. And Austin was like, okay, fine, I'll see if I can pass on your CV. And as he was saying that, the, um, the CFO walked through, who's a guy called Ian Lewis, and he was like, okay, what, like, I've seen you in here before, what do you want? And I was like, oh, I want an apprenticeship. And he was like, well, we can't offer you an apprenticeship, but we do have a part-time front of house job. Would you like mm. it? Mm. And I was like, great, fantastic. I'll take that. No sales experience. Uh, I'd never worked on Savile Road before. I'd worked in a shop before, but a makeup shop. I didn't really know anything about cloth. And I was like, I mean, I'll just learn on the job. Um, and so started working the following week. And they had said to me that I could do four days front of house and mm. one day as an apprentice. And so Stuart came back from his 40th birthday and walked into the shop and I was like, hi, I'm your apprentice. Hello. <laughs> and he's like, what? I know I'm an apprentice. And I was like, yeah, yeah, they just employed me. And he was like, hang on a second. He went upstairs, came back down and was like, oh, so, uh, so you're my apprentice. Mm. Fine. And he didn't really want to employ me. Um, he didn't, he'd never worked <laughs> with a girl before. Uh, he didn't really want an apprentice and he got lumped with me. Um, and after that, I did. I started with a day a week with him, and then it went up and up and up mm. until I was full time. Um, and we had another guy, Joe Butler, who's now at Dunhill, uh, in the mm. shop with us, who was also selling cuts. And so yeah, it was the three of us. And 
So for, for someone who, who wanted to become or be more creative and therefore left to set out uh, um, a, a, an own establishment, let's say, why, why did you not stay with costumes? Surely they are doing more diverse things there than, than menswear. Uh, what's the story there? In all honesty, it's so antisocial. I just <laughs> like costume. Like I did work placements on films, and you are the first one in, and you are the last one out. And right. you're working out. I mean, like if you're on a film, if you're working on a film, you will be in the in or like on set in the caravan at mm-hmm. five in the morning, seeing everything, getting everything hung out, and then mm-hmm. you are the last person because you cannot go home until everything is themed and hung out mm-hmm. and the work's kind of uncertain it's also I love I love cutting mm-hmm. for me it's, it's less making and designing mm-hmm. I actually really enjoy the process of you know having someone 3D mm-hmm. using what is effectively a series of equations and math uh, to create something 2D for it to then go back to 3D and I find that really exciting I think that's really cool um, mm-hmm. and costume for me it's really lovely and I really enjoy it and I really love looking at costume in film and in theatre and whatever. Uh, but I only wanted to do menswear. Actually, I tell you one place I probably would have gone and worked is the Royal Opera House. Mm-hmm. I, did a, I did a work place in there in my first year at uni, my first summer at uni. And that I loved. I mm-hmm. loved it. Because at that stage I hadn't really discovered tailoring. Mm-hmm. And so it's just loads of tutus and loads of like fun bodices and seams and and that I found really fun and flouncy. Um, but I think I'd always rather you know, do it as a hobby and like bash out mm-hmm. a tutu for my daughter rather than do it as a full time um, full time job. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, that makes sense. You are now a business owner, and having experienced being an employee and being in the world of well, being in our industry as 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 a professional what do you think about this weird, strange problem that seems to be kind of like reinforcing itself, uh, which our industry has? And the problem is something like every business owner knows that their apprentices may leave someday. Knowing that their apprentices may leave someday will automatically and quite naturally uh, prevent the business owner to give like 100% of their time and kind of like resources to that apprentice. So there is always this underlying, you know, you're a cool person, but I don't know if you're going to stay. I don't know if you're going to leave, you know, so I won't be able to invest as much. I'm not going to give you as much responsibility. And so then that reinforces the, the, the employee or the apprentice in their perception sometimes uh, in, in the sense that they're like, well, you know, it seems as if I'm never going to be able to, you know, build something in this company. So I am going to leave. So what do you think that we could do as business owners, but also as apprentices and, and employees for anyone listening for our industry in building trust in a way that maybe an Antonia at Huntsman's or me at Chittleboro Morgan or someone else at another company can say, I trust this company. I really think I can become someone important in this company. And I will just be patient and go through it. And I'm sure that one day I will be able to uh, be creative or, or implement my ideas. 
What do you think we can do about this? Because I'm sure this is going to happen to us at some point as well, maybe like down 10 years, 20 years later. Oh, well, already happened. Even Um, worse. (laughs) Yeah, no, so we, uh, we've really sadly lost our apprentice in May last year. Um, Megan, Megan was pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. So she, and we were on very, very good terms. And I'm saying this with the hope that she might one day come back. But, the setup we had is that Dima and I are two separate companies mm-hmm. and Megan came to me through a friend and was like, I want to be a tailor. I was like, great, cool. Come and do a couple of days work experience. Um, she then at the end of the two days work experience, Dima and I had a chat and we were like, we've, we've got to work out how to keep her. Mm-hmm. So she came and started working for us. And the deal was she did two days a week for each of us. And then mm-hmm. whoever needed her most on the third day got her. So with each week, we kind of liaise about it and chat about who needed more help. Um, and then we paid her a freelance rate for that day. Now, the, the difficulty is that for certain disciplines, apprenticeships are, sh- are shorter. A cutting mm-hmm. apprenticeship is the longest apprenticeship you can do. Um, in order for someone, therefore, to become useful for you, you're looking at like year two or three. Mm-hmm. It is a huge investment of time. Like mm-hmm. I say this as someone who's been an apprentice. I also say this as someone who remembers being an apprentice and remembers how unbelievably terrible the pay is. Mm-hmm. But I also was so lucky in that I was taught by two phenomenal men, um, mm-hmm. Stuart at Hardy Amy's, Pat Murphy at Huntsman. Um, and both of them poured everything into me. Mm-hmm. The reason I mentioned earlier about talking to Stuart about taking the job at Huntsman was exactly because of this. Um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of heartbreaking, I always thought we would at some point work together again, um, which just never happened. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the joyful thing about our industry is that even if you're afraid of your apprentice leaving, it's your responsibility as the employer to make sure that that apprentice is, you know, obviously they are an employee, they have to kind of turn the line, but also make sure that they're having as positive an experience as an apprentice as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, I am hugely lucky in that I knew I could always ring up either of my ex-bosses. I mean, I still do. And be like, hang on a second, look, I've had this before. This is the alteration I did. The alterations come up again. I've done it and it hasn't worked this time. Why is that? Or how would you deal with this? Or what do you think about this talk? Or, you know, there's constant communication. Um, I think the answer is not to go into it going, how do I stop them from leaving? I think you have to go about it saying, how can I keep them? Mm -hmm. How can I make this job good a role as possible in as good a company as possible that they don't Mm -hmm. want to leave Mm -hmm. um megan left us because she has (laughs) she left the trade i mean that's how bad it was no she got offered an opportunity in a company um making bike bags she's a very keen cyclist she's very environmentally conscious and this basically ticks all the boxes um and when she told us where she was going we were like yeah we kind of get why you're going there Mm. but i also think you sort of have to look at it in a way that if I'm kind of like an ex-boyfriend, you have to think, you know, if I couldn't make it work with you, I couldn't make it work with anyone. Mm-hmm. It has to be that level of commitment. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think one of the major bonuses of our trade is that there is this extraordinary um, love of sharing information. I think people are astoundingly willing to share their knowledge. And I think that mm-hmm. is such a strength and such a positive. And I, that brings me huge joy because I feel like, you know, knowledge shared is, is an extraordinary thing. Um, yes, yes. I hope that in the next 10, 15, 20 years, those who are withholding information in quite an old school way understand that there's no benefit to be had from it. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no like ideal. There was a great story about a cutter at Huntsman whose name I've completely forgotten, uh, who used to do certain things to his patterns. So like, I don't know, he had always, he'd cut his patterns half an inch shy on the side body or like an inch shy on the side body, knowing that with every single one of his patterns, when he strikes out, he'd add half an inch or three quarters of an inch to the side body. So if anyone else ever nicked his patterns or tried to use his patterns, they'd look terrible. Or like he'd crook on all his jobs by a quarter. Whatever yeah. it was, he used to do the same to all his patterns so that no one else could benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Now in my head, that's a stupid thing to do because yeah. it's, yes, it's your pattern. Yes, it's your work. It's your, it's your, it's your handiwork. Mm-hmm. But also, we're only as good as the last job we cut. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, if if a friend of mine has a query or, you know, and, and, sorry, quickly, that's one of the things I love is that there is no level of pride. So the number of times I've asked a friend a question and been like, oh, quick, spacing for a white tie or, you mm-hmm. know, someone rang me up and was like, oh, quickly, cutting morning cake, I haven't done one for four years. Quick, quick mm-hmm. question about how much fullness you put in the skirt. Mm-hmm. I love that there is not that pride and that there's mm-hmm. not that kind of, um, stigma about asking for help mm-hmm. but i think for the people who are withholding information um i think it'll come and bite them on the bum <laughs> yeah i think it, it well if it, i would steal the pattern of that huntsman uh, cutter and i would try to use it and and what he's doing to it after he's striking it out is is, is his secret i would strike out his pattern and and it, i would get really terrible results and i wouldn't think oh i'm missing a secret i would just say what a terrible pattern. Who is this idiot? And so, and so, you know, it doesn't really help in that sense. Uh, yeah. But so, you and know, I also think th- until you've worked with someone else's pattern, there's something quite, um, Dima and I often discuss it. There's something quite stressful about working with someone else's pattern yeah. because we all, we all cut as we were taught by our masters. So there are like loads of different, I mean, hundreds of different systems. Mm-hmm. Um, they will effectively have the same result in that they'll all come out with a single-breasted coat and a plain front pair of trousers. Uh, Lee May, who I don't know if he actually came across before he moved to America, he, so to kind of fill in the loop, every three to five years, I always joke that everyone moves three places to the left on Savile Row <laughs> because one person moves, then one person moves, and then one person moves. But yeah. it happened that I moved to, Pippa moved to Hong Kong, I moved to Huntsman, Lee moved to Hardy Amy's, Ollie Cross moved to where Lee was. You know, we all kind of, we knew the people who were taking our jobs and it was great. And Lee and I were having a conversation about trousers one day and we set aside a Saturday and between us, we worked out we could cut five different trouser systems. So we have one set of measures and cut all five systems and we both cut both at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, so we had 10 patterns and then we laid them all out and I mean, it was fascinating. All those pairs of trousers would have gone on the client and would have looked okay. Mm-hmm. But they were all different. Mm-hmm. 
And and so to me, you know, I look at my patterns now and I cut Pat's coat pattern and Stuart's trouser pattern. So I'm effectively using a Frankenstein's cutting system, you know, it's one of each. Um, and I think it's very, I think it's very cool. I think it's very interesting. And I think it's a really lovely setup where, you know, you kind of have that. But you're right, actually, cutting off someone else's pattern, if it doesn't go together nicely, you're just going to think, oh my God, what are they doing? Like, oh. Um and then it doesn't, it doesn't benefit anyone. Um, mm-hmm. And I always say to my tailors, like, and particularly those that I've worked with for a long time, it's a very good proxy for keeping the quality of work up the way our trade works. Mm-hmm. Because if I, if I consistently cut bad jobs, mm-hmm. I, no one's going to want to work for me. You know, they're all yeah. freelancers, actually. They're going to mm-hmm. be like, oh, actually, Antonio, I'm a bit full. Uh, can't really take on mm-hmm. another job. Equally, yeah. if they keep producing substandard jobs, Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give them any more work because it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. So you sort of have a built-in quality control yeah. by the fact that you have to make sure you're cutting well. You have to make sure your jobs go together nicely. You have to, and any tailor that tells me that, or sorry, any cutter that tells me that there is a hierarchy within the trade, you know, and, and cutters that are be all and end all. I think that's absolutely rubbish because A, I couldn't do my job without my tailors. Mm-hmm. B, I'm only as good as they are. Mm-hmm. And they're only as good as I am. And actually, mm-hmm. I can learn a hell of a lot from my tailors um, mm-hmm. because they know what they're doing. They're the, you know, they are the best at what they do. Yes. And I can only aspire to be the best at what I do to make mm-hmm. sure that that relationship stays happy and stays good and, and you know, and works. Yeah. Um, well, and it's funny when you mention this. I, th- I think you're 100% right. And I think one of the things that people forget who see cutters and tailors separately is that one there was once was a day where cutting and making was one job it was the same just only because of the necessity of things like wars and industrialization did they separate but you know 200 years ago 400 years ago we were just cutters and makers uh, all all in one and so and and what you say about the sh- the sharing of knowledge i think is 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 extremely important especially in in a time period where a lot of young people for whatever reason partially the reason what you mentioned the reasons that i have for leaving um are going out on their own and so it it creates a new community and that sharing of knowledge and that camaraderie let's say helps to uh, keep this new generation alive and i can't decide i mean you you tell me what you think but i can't figure out whether it's a good thing that companies can't eventually keep all their apprentices or whether it's a bad thing because i can imagine if you're uh, an established company and you're not giving someone the fancy jobs let's say where they can be creative and naturally they're going to be like well i want to be creative so i'm going to leave uh so then you lose them but is it a good thing or a bad thing? Because, you know, a company that exists for way too long will stagnate at some point. And then that's where you really need the, the new energy, whether it's going to be in a, in a different shop or in the same shop. What do you think about that? I think you're right. I think there has to be fresh blood. There has to be fresh ideas coming out of Savile Row. Um, we need to mm-hmm. make sure that it stays current. And that there are exciting ideas coming through. That said, I feel really invigorated by the latest kind of push for people to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and coming back to the information sharing thing, I love the fact that there are, I mean, I can think of four in the last year who've come to Dima and I and been like, hey guys, you set up on your own. I'm thinking about doing it. 
how do you find it? How mm-hmm. did you do it? What do you do? I will 100% share that information with anyone because mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff we had to work really hard to find out, you know, where do you get your labels made? Where do you get your garments bag printed? All mm-hmm. of those things that actually, mm-hmm. if I can save a friend four hours of work to mm-hmm. find a nice place to get their garment bags made, I will absolutely share that. Um, mm-hmm. Because in a year's time, a client might walk into their workroom or their shop and say, you know, I need to get a suit made for six weeks' time. Can you do it? Mm-hmm. They'll say no. But hang on a second. Antonia's mm-hmm. around the corner. Let me give her a ring. And this does happen a lot where, yeah, yeah as I said earlier, I'd rather a friend of mine got the job than no one yeah. got the job. Um, yeah. I think the the thing with keeping people in the trade, I mean, <sighs> tailoring, tailoring is the most addictive legal substance. Mm-hmm. So there will always be people who want bespoke suits and there will always be people to make bespoke suits the thing I think we need to focus on is you know all these articles coming out at the moment like death of the suit COVID's killed the suit no one's ever going to come into the office again all of that stuff is so ridiculous because of the fact that they're focusing on the wrong market Mm -hmm. they are focusing on T.M. Lewin Charles Turret Roderick Charles and mm-hmm. the guys that go in and buy two suits a year with two pairs of mm-hmm. trousers, they walk mm-hmm. to death around the city, kill mm-hmm. these suits, send them to a dry cleaner, get them pressed in a hotel, mm-hmm. and then the next year they'll buy another two suits. Those guys aren't going to buy those suits because they're not mm-hmm. going into the office every day. And when they are, you know, it's mostly casual other than the three meetings they have a week. Mm-hmm. But those are the clients who now are coming to people like me and going, okay, look, I used to spend that on mm. two suits plus two pairs of trousers. Actually, can you make me a really nice suit for a little bit more than that, but mm-hmm. one that'll last me for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. And that's what's great about what we do. You know, Pat Murphy has suits that are older than I am. Like, mm-hmm. they're still going strong. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's one of those things where you these garments are timeless. These, these mm-hmm. are pieces that are built to last. And mm-hmm. so actually, if you're prepared to invest in it, and I think that's where the, the change has come, that people are prepared to invest in it. Um, and therefore, it's kind of a lovely, there'll always be people to make them. There'll always be apprentices. There'll always be our trade. It's just whether mm-hmm. the big houses need to buck up and be like, hmm, okay, fine. Maybe we need to adapt the way, um, mm-hmm. the way we're teaching them. Yes. Actually, sorry, on a side note, one of the things that most annoys me is when people say, I treat my apprentice like this because that's how I was treated. Oh, yeah. And I yeah, think yeah, that yeah. is, <laughs> sorry, excuse my French, but I think that's fucking annoying. Yeah. Because actually, that is not an excuse. You should treat your apprentice how you wanted to be treated or how you thought you should be treated, i.e., mm-hmm. with respect, people are complacent mm-hmm. about how they were taught um i don't see any reason that you should be an asshole to your apprentice um mm-hmm. i don't think it's necessary i don't think it necessarily benefits the way you teach people mm-hmm. uh, i was treated by both my bosses with huge respect and mm-hmm. care and kindness yes and i've come out all right like i don't yeah. understand this sort of bullying tactic and i think you know, <laughs> i had a client announcement where before the end of the fitting, I said to him what I always say to my clients, which is, you know, um, is there anything you've seen that I haven't seen that you'd like tweaked? Mm-hmm. You know, are you happy with the sleeve length? 
And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? How long do you like your sleeve? And he said, oh, well, well Mr. Hammock just used to tell me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? So his tailor just used to tell him how he liked it. And that was just that. And I think with apprentices, often the same, where they're just told that that is how it is. That is how yeah. your apprenticeship should be. It should be a difficult experience. It should be really hard work. It shouldn't be. It doesn't yeah. need to be. Actually, everyone learns in different ways. And if you are like me and you learn through someone mm-hmm. being kind to you and showing you a productive way forward, it means mm-hmm. that when you do inevitably make a mistake, yes, you aren't terrified to admit to it because you know you can learn from it. And you know that your boss will be like, mm, actually, Antonio, mm-hmm. that's really annoying and that's a really expensive mistake you just made. Yes. Don't do it you're like, yeah. okay, cool, I'll take that on board and I won't do it again because I'm mortified that I've had to do that because I like and respect you so much. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make a mistake. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I think there is something mean, uh, you know, just psychologically about about people who say, well, you know, I was abused during my apprenticeship, so you should be too. And I think what they want to do really is they just want to take the revenge that they couldn't from that person that they, sh- you know, should have spoken about about it, you know. And so now they're taking it out on someone else. Plus, um, I think those people who do that don't really want to develop anyone. They just want to have someone under the, their thumb as, as almost like a paid slave kind of thing, you know. Um, so developing people really... I didn't see any point in it. No, it's, it's just... It's just uh, well, it's... it's it, there is a lot of complexes there, I think, because, uh, you know, when you want to develop, you have kids, right? And so when you want them to develop and become something you, you the best they can be, let's say, you, you pay a lot of attention and you, you watch them and you see, you know, where they're doing well and you encourage that and you give them feedback. You know, as they grow older, you give them good advice about future decisions, etc. And that's what a good employee, a.k.a. master or, or, or mentor would do. Now, I have another question, Antonia, about um, your company. Um, do you, obviously, you are the, are you the, currently the only cutter in your company? Yeah. Okay, so, so one of the things that I'm thinking about, and I'd like to discuss this with, with as many people as possible, but I'll start with you, um, is that you're, you're uh, and I don't think this really matters that much in the end result, but I do think there are some nuances here and there, and I'll explain why. So you're cutting mainly men's clothing, and I only men's clothing. Yeah. Okay, so even better, even more extreme. So you're, you're cutting only men's clothing. And, you know, men's clothing traditionally in the history of time has mainly been developed by male labor and, and kind of like military institutions and uniforms and all of that. Now that we are becoming more creative and kind of like open as, as, a, as a community of tailors, I don't know how in the next hundred years things will evolve, but... We are kind of like in the beginning shift where we're getting a lot more the female cutters and female coat makers. And it's going to be kind of like just uh, like a transition, like a blend. And, and then it's like, OK, whoever wants to be a maker or a cutter can be. Now, how yeah. do you think your your feminine traits, let's say, influence your view on the perfect ideal masculine figure in 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 the garments that you're creating i'm very curious about that the new male gaze um (laughs) so i think um that's a really good question okay so the reason that i only do menswear is because i trained in menswear and i love Mm. menswear um 
hilariously, most people think that I do women's wear because I'm a woman. Um, yeah. And I painstakingly have to explain that actually, unfortunately, I don't. I did a bit of women's wear when I set up on my own. Mm-hmm. In, in that I was like, I'll take any order I can get. Um, and actually got so little joy from them that mm. I decided to just go back to what I love doing and stick to what I love doing and stick to what I know I love doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think women's seating is amazing when it's done well, but I also think it's very easy to do badly. Mm-hmm. And I think it can often look quite frumpy and quite staid. I mean, I do not wear a suit jacket every day because I have quite a kind of, quite a girly figure. Um, and I have only ever cut like a couple of things for myself that I like, which is shameful, but actually my husband has a very nice wardrobe. Um, so <laughs> I think in terms of the aesthetic, actually, sorry, I'm going to flip that around the other way. In terms of jobs within our trade, I always laugh when I think about kind of the gender stereotypes within each job. Um, obviously cutters tend to be men, um, finishers always women, presses always men, which makes me laugh because men doing the ironing. But actually, those irons are so heavy. And again, yeah. finishing, it's such dainty, delicate work um, that there is a reason why it tends to be beautiful, tiny ones sort of doing it because they've got really delicate hands. Mm-hmm. I think with other jobs, you know, coat making and trouser making, there is absolutely no reason why who worked on your job should affect anything. Um, mm-hmm. When I was a huntsman, and I, hopefully I'm not sort of really trying to speaking out of terms, telling a story. But when I was a huntsman, a client came in and the salesman took the order and then said I was going to get the cutter and came and got me. I measured the client, all was well. He left the shop. I said, we'll get a fitting ready. He rang the shop. And this guy was like mid-50s American, like white guy, rang the shop and said, actually, I'd like to have a male cutter. And I was like, okay, firstly, you didn't have the ball to my face, which is quite embarrassing for you. Secondly, like, what difference do you think that is tangibly going to make? I've been taught mm-hmm. by a guy. I cut men's suits. I'm trained in men's Like, come on. So I went to Campbell, who's head cutter at Huntsman, off Pat Left. And I said, Cam, like, it's actually really annoying. Mm-hmm. And Campbell was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to cut the suit. Only girls are going to work on it. I'll fit it. And at the end, we'll talk to him. Mm-hmm. And we did it. And I don't, like, I don't actually know what Campbell said in the fitting and when this guy collected the suit, but I made sure to the point that I pressed the suit. Like, mm-hmm. it took me a while because it's been a while since I've been pressing and I'm no way near as good as George. But I was like, I am determined that yeah. only women will work on this suit because actually I've now got a point to prove. And that's not particularly like me I was obviously feeling particularly stubborn at that time but it does annoy me and and it, it annoys me on a scale because actually I've also had a, you know a blustering old client who uh must have been like in his 90s and I walked into the fitting room and he said oh no you can go and get the cuff in that and I was like no no I am the cuff there and he was like oh well how modern mm-hmm. and I was like fair enough and we then had a lovely fitting and it was really good and he was really happy and we you know yada 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 um, I've had other clients who've asked me to go and get the tailor and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I am the tailor. Mm-hmm. And they've like, no, 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 the male tailor that worked on it. And so I've gone and got a male coat maker and they've walked into the fitting room and been like, yeah, no, I'm telling you cut this. This is how it works. This is, 
and it, it does make me quite sad when you have to prove a point like that. Um, I think the mega advantage of being your own company is that by the time people get here, I mean, firstly, we're, we're upstairs, so we, we don't have a shop front. Um, so we tend not to get time wasters, which is mm-hmm. great. Um, there are a lot of time wasters on Savile Row. Often lovely people, but like, come on, we've all got better things to do. Um, by the time people come to us, they normally know that they want to order. Mm-hmm. Like they, they've done their research. They know that we're quite a young house. They know that what we do, they know how we cut. They want to order. Um, they also, if they've done their research, know that they're coming to a woman. What drives me mad, quickly going back to the learning thing, the apprenticeship thing, is when people send me emails to my email address being like, dear sir, please find and close my TV. And I'm like, look, I'm really sorry. I'm not even going to use because you obviously haven't looked at my website. You've obviously just found this like list of SRB tailoring houses or whatever and just bashed out the same email. <laughs> Actually, if you can't be asked to look up that I'm a woman, I'm not going to bother giving you anything. Like, I'm really sorry. Do your research. It's just lazy. Um, in terms of silhouette, I don't think I cut a particularly feminine cut, but I would say that I cut a huntsman coat, which is... <clears throat> by proxy quite feminine you know high armhole nipped in waist full skirt mm-hmm. quite crisp felt. like it, it is naturally quite a kind of defined silhouette um yeah. and because i was taught by pat mm-hmm. that's my kind of go-to um mm-hmm. but one of the joys again of, of being on my own is that if someone comes in and says to me i want a machine washable unstructured completely unlined suit Mm-hmm. I'll be like, okay, cool. Let's work out how to do this. Let's, um, you know, mm-hmm. let's, let's go to town. Let's try and make it happen. And so as a result, with more relaxed tailoring coming in, we have been cutting slightly more relaxed silhouettes. Um, there is a point where I say no, mm-hmm. in that sometimes, and it tends to be again with younger clients, where they're like, oh, can you make it a bit shorter, a bit shorter, a bit shorter? And I'm like, no, you will look mm-hmm. stupid. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why um, you're you're being paid for that job. You're you are the professional who decides eventually uh, on those things. Well, I mean, but I'm not the one wearing it. Sure. So I will guide and I will advise. And actually, you know, I always say the joy of the spoke is that you're using the idea of how someone sees themselves mm-hmm. with your creative and technical knowledge, and you're mm-hmm. just splushing them together and seeing what happens. Um, I think we see a lot of trends. Mm-hmm. So we see, you know, I remember when Mad Men came out, we were doing suddenly loads of double-breasted suits. Peaky Blinders came out. Oh, everyone wants a three-piece. You know, it's very, mm-hmm. um, the shift is very tangible and, and obviously popular mm-hmm. culture does play into that. Um, but I think, I quite like soft tailoring. I think it's very, you know, it's a fancy cardigan. It's, it's lovely mm-hmm. to wear. It's, it's a great garment. Um, mm-hmm. And unstructured jackets are beautiful. Are beautifully made. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, yeah, I'm so. I don't have that much time for people who are like, "This is our house cut, and we will do nothing else." Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a very bad thing. Phone. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I think as well. So, would you would you say that when you are looking at your garments and and you're you're looking at the person in front of you, do you do you envision something ideal that you would generally use on most of them and then make finer uh, adjustments to it or do you try to look at the person and be like okay 
this person definitely cannot get away with a nipped waist, even if they have a nipped waist, something like that. How, how do you look at that? So I ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. when, when, we, when, when I take an order, I ask a lot of questions, um, you know, from asking someone whether they run hot, whether they're like naturally a warm person, um, which FYI, people either say, what do you mean? Or yes. Yeah. And you can tell by that instantly whether they do or not. If someone's like, oh, what do you mean? You're like, no, you tend to say run hot. Um, but, you know, asking someone runs hot, if, they, if it's someone who's naturally quite slim, often they don't want something that's super slim fitting because they've mm -hmm. looked skinny all their lives and they want something that kind of makes them look like they've got a bit more chest or whatever. Yeah. Um, I also, I think a lot of our job, Stuart um, Easter is a Taj Mahal effect. It's an optical illusion. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of cutting a pattern is creating that illusion, is creating that kind of aesthetic where your proportions look right. Mm -hmm. We are all wonky. We're all wonky. We've all got different wobbles and shapes. And, you know, the reason why a lot of people come to us is they can't buy off the peg. Mm -hmm. I think our job as a tailor is to make that aesthetic look as good as it possibly can. So I always say, I mean, obviously we're in mid um, morning coat madness, but I always say with morning coats, actually they're a wonderful garment because you have to cut the trousers higher so mm -hmm. that the waistcoat isn't too long. And then the coat is a body coat, so the waist is high naturally. And then it's mm -hmm. got this beautiful skirt. And what that does is make everyone look like they've got terribly long legs. Mm -hmm. Their body, you can get a really nice shape through the waistcoat because actually you have that, that ability to create a kind of, tight frame and then you've got this coat on top that makes everyone look like they're very very tall and very elegant mm -hmm. and I think you know we want to kind of almost aspire to do that practice throughout any garment you're cutting so whether mm -hmm. it's an overcoat making sure the length of an overcoat right and doesn't swamp someone or making sure that I don't know a shooting jacket doesn't make them mm -hmm. look like they borrowed their dad you know it, mm -hmm. it's it's all about finding the right proportion to that person um, exactly yeah and yeah. and yeah, the Taj Mahal effect with the bent steps at the front. Okay. You know, it, it, it all works out in the end and they look straight. Yeah, yeah. Antonia, I have a few uh, a few words that I've written down during, during our conversation. I'm going to run them through uh, by you. And you, you, in one word, tell me the first thing that pops up your mind. Okay? Okay. So, the role of tailoring in society. Style. 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 Setting up, setting up your own company. Scary. Scary. The most important thing about an apprenticeship. Kindness. What did you say? Kindness. Kindness. Okay. Creativity. Yeah. Work. Work. Interesting. Um, Costume. Hobby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Trust. Sorry? Trust. Apprentice. Apprentice. Interesting. Um, women's wear. Minefield. <laughs> Minefield. Okay. If, if, you, if you had a magic wand... And you could make three changes in our industry. What would those three changes be? 
better funding for apprentices, mm-hmm. more accessible funding for apprentices, mm-hmm. getting rid of the bloody business rates, which just like caps everyone's aspiration for what they can achieve within a company. Um, mm-hmm. You know, rent and business rates in central London are ridiculous. And every mm-hmm. mayor of London says they're going to change it and no one does. Um, Hmm. third one the third one's difficult because I think I would I would love to make tailoring more accessible you know what we create is very expensive it is very expensive product because it's made properly and it's made Mm -hmm. ethically and it's made with good materials and it's made to last Mm -hmm. but that's not cheap Mm -hmm. all our tailors are paid properly you know everyone is within 100 meters of here everyone that works for me is paid weekly and that is very important to me you know you are if you put the work in your log gets paid that week mm-hmm. i think people need to start investing but i think the problem is that in order to invest people have to have a greater understanding of why something is so expensive mm-hmm. and if you explain it to people and if you say to them well actually i can name every person that worked on your suit and i know that they're all paid properly and i know that you know Dave's putting a new kitchen in this week, so I've chucked a bit more work his way. People understand that. But I think for Joe Blogs on the street, the reason Bespoke is so expensive doesn't really make sense because there are a lot of companies, a lot Mm -hmm. of designer labels that are making huge markups on something. And I understand that that's because it's got the correct label in it. Um, Mm -hmm. But when a single man came out, a Tom Ford dinner suit... Mm-hmm. was more expensive than a completely handmade one on Savile Row. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that is ridiculous because mm-hmm. actually for the price of that Tom Ford dinner suit, you're providing a living for three people. Mm-hmm. And actually it's something that's probably better made and will probably last longer and probably cut better for your figure. I'm not saying the Tom Ford ones are beautiful, but you know, it's, I understand, um, yes. and so I think I would make tailoring more accessible in that I would, I would create a better understanding of why you should be buying clothes that last why you should be investing in pieces um, to build your wardrobe for life rather than to follow trends. Mm-hmm. Okay, That'd makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And last but not least, Antonia Eid. I mean, I'm a tailor, uh, I'm a business owner, I'm a mum, I'm a friend, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, you know. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I think the, the interesting thing, quickly speaking back, mm-hmm. I think the one thing our trade struggles with is that often, because it's quite a male industry, if you're at work as a male cutter, you're at work. Mm-hmm. And that is that. And that is very much it. I think if you're at work as a female cutter, you're also... And this is, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so lucky to have my job because I can allow for this. But, but you're also thinking about like mm-hmm. the school run and mm-hmm. getting jobs out to clients and making yes. sure your tailors are happy and and oh my god, did I put the laundry on or mm-hmm. you know all of those other things. Um, and I was talking to my sister about it the other day, who said that she finds it really difficult because actually, it's there is this extra load, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of female tailors 
and I could mm. be speaking out of turn, so I could be completely alone in this. But I feel like a lot of female tailors are constantly juggling because mm. actually there is a little bit more, mm-hmm. a little bit more expectation, a little bit more kind of to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can't go on a trunk show for three weeks around America. No, it makes sense. Kids, it makes like, sense. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's complex. Juggling. But you know, I understand what you're saying. Uh, you know, you have so many different tasks that you have to manage at the same time. And if people thought that running a, you know, a business is difficult, well, try running a business and a family, and your own ideas, and you know everything else that you have to do. Uh, when was the last time you took a holiday? <laughs> oh no, I had this weekend off. It was lovely. Oh, okay. um, well, weekend. I... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> The bank holiday. No, I think it's just one of those things where you you learn to juggle it. But I also mm-hmm. think our our job or the job of a cutter, particularly, is that you are. I kind of in my head, I weirdly visualize it like you're you're a ring, mm-hmm. and off that ring you've got like other spinning rings. Mm-hmm. So all your tailors are those spinning rings. So those rings are linked to you and then there's another ring which is your client Mm -hmm. and the link up and the logistics and the communication has to be there Mm -hmm. or they all stop spinning like Mm -hmm. if you if you stop spinning they all stop spinning they all fall apart as with what i said about the quality of work earlier i think it's very important for companies to start looking after their tailors in times where there is less work or in times when work isn't so certain you know the pandemic being a prime example of this um i think looking after your tailors isn't just necessarily paying them i think it's looking after their welfare i think it's looking after you know making sure that everything's kind of ticking along or rejigging mm-hmm. clients if they're really like overwhelmed and can't get a job done in time there's no point in shouting at someone to get work done like actually the yeah. answer is to say okay fine if you're snowed under that's not a problem what we'll do is we will move that client by a week, give you an extra week to work on it. If you've done it three days early, great. If you haven't, you've got until then. But that is a joy of running my own company where I can ring a client and say, it's Antonio here, I'm really sorry, but actually my tailor's having a really difficult week or has moved mm-hmm. house or has had a baby or whatever. Can you give me another week on it? And they always say yes, because they're mm-hmm. human. And, you know, you joked earlier about people saying, you know, we're not saving lives. I mean, we're not saving lives what we do is clothes but also people take huge joy in that and if they're getting a garment that they know has been rushed through and the person that's working on it has kind of done a bit of a bodge job because they're under pressure mm-hmm. they're not going to enjoy wearing it like no actually true. we want to create something that is is worth the money that we're charging for it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. at huntsman pat used to do this really interesting thing that i actually always really respect him for um he'd come in in the morning make him a cup of coffee and then he would go downstairs and walk through the workshop and the whole point of that tiny action is to check in mm-hmm. you're literally you're just checking in with your guys you're you're making sure that people are happy you're making sure there are no major arguments going on because workshops as we all know are full spaces um you're seeing how people are juggling work you're seeing how people are coping with work you're seeing how people are managing you're like asking how people's kids are or asking how mm-hmm. their wedding was or you know, those are all those all make for a happier workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, I think running a tailoring firm as anything other than a tailoring firm is a mistake. Mm-hmm. 
you don't become a tailor if you want to be a millionaire. You become a tailor mm-hmm. because you love the craft and you love what we're doing and you love yes. the fact. And yes, don't get me wrong, it's a job at the end of the mm-hmm. day. Like it is a mm-hmm. job and you treat it like a job. But I also think you come into this industry because the people are here. Mm-hmm. And and as a result, you have to look after those people. And yeah. you have to make sure that they're okay because, you know, it's your family. It's your work family. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I think running it like a, like a sort of city business mm-hmm. isn't necessarily... Um, it's terrible. Um, there are a finite number of tailors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, and I think when you're leading a company, um, uh, I think you're bringing such a good point up. It, it's your responsibility as the person who is in contact with the client to protect or at least look after the tailors in the sense that if the client says, hey, I need this suit by tomorrow and you know that some poor soul in the back of your workshop has to, you know, half develop some sort of a disease working on that jacket it's your responsibility to just say no sorry we need another week because i don't want to crush my tailors and i think that that usually it, it i hope it happens often but i don't know how often it happens but certainly the times that it didn't happen i remember it was terrible i was like um hey another human being has to make this you know if if the client says i need it tomorrow just say no it is not possible you know, it's there's no point in telling the customer, yes, sir, tomorrow it's going to be there and, and some other person at the cost of someone else's health. So no, I agree with you. I agree. And it's good to think. And about I also think that's, that's a very difficult thing about taking on a rush job. Um, I generally try and avoid them because yeah, I don't need the stress. But equally, if I'm going to take on a skiffle, I will mm. not take on that order until I have spoken to the tailor that I'm going to give it to and said, actually, yes. do you fancy a quick job? Yeah. These are the deadlines. And yeah. with a skiffle, I always book in all of the fittings when I take the order mm-hmm. so that I can go to the tailor and say, okay, these are the deadlines. This yeah. is when it's going to be a base. This is when it's going to be a forward. This is when it's going to be a finish. It will all be over by that week. That is the yeah. day he's picking it up. Are you yeah. up for it? If yeah. they say yes, fantastic, I'll do it. If they say exactly. no, I'm not going to take on that job because mm. it's not fair for me to do it. You know, it's not mm. fair for me to kind of randomly take an order and then assume that someone mm. else will sacrifice their evening for it. Like, yeah, that's not okay. It's fine if yeah. it's my evening because it's my order. But actually, mm. I'm just, I'm like, just at the top of the chain. Like, it's mm. not, you know, you've got coat maker, trouser maker, waistcoat maker, finisher, presser. All those guys have to pull their fingers out for me. Yeah. Um, and that's a big ask. Yeah, true. That's very true. That's very true. Well, yeah. Antonia, um, thank you very much for this conversation. It's, really uh, nice talking to yeah, you. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if this sounds weird, but I didn't imagine enjoying so much talking to you. Uh, <laughs> I think the last time I, I, I saw you in person was... Uh, just when you were when you were judging the golden shears, I think that was literally the last time I, I saw you. Since then. Uh. No, yeah, it's like a few years now, and uh, and yeah, obviously in between, uh, I didn't have any communication. But thank you again for for this lovely chat, and uh, thank you for making time. It's, it's, it felt as if we were just uh, in, in a in a cafe or something, uh, but. <laughs> The next time I'm in town, I, I definitely will visit you and and say you hello, uh, and, and yeah, try not to be a, ta- and I'll try not to be a time waster. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> Not at all. Come on up. Everybody yeah. welcome. No, yeah. I will. All I right, will. lovely I, to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you very much, Antonia. Appreciate thank it. You. And that was Antonia. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to see more of Antonia, you can follow the links to her Instagram and website in the description of this video. If you have any thoughts, comments, or anything you'd like to mention, please let us know in the comment section, and I hope to see you again in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye.